into your mind I
Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to the Royal Festival Hall. My name is Ted Hodgkinson and I'm Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word here at Southbank Centre. Tonight we are delighted to welcome 5 by 15 who curate inspiring and imaginative events across the UK. They first approached me about hiring the Royal Festival Hall this evening over seven months ago with a rare meeting between poet and politician. I can't take any credit for the event you're about to witness. It's all down to them. When we confirmed the event though seven months ago, it was to focus on the cultural crossover between poetry and politics. And we want to reaffirm our focus this evening on that rich literary connection. At Southbank Centre, we believe the arts are for the many, not the few, and welcome voices from a variety of backgrounds and political beliefs. Across our many festivals and literature programme, we have a commitment to being broad and inclusive, and above all, to celebrate the transformative power of the arts. Just a few lines of poetry can stay with us for a lifetime. Whether you're a pupil in a classroom or a politician in Westminster, a po poem can remind us of the universal things that we all share. Poetry has often been a catalyst for new ways of thinking, inspiring a range of figures past and present to take their chosen paths. This evening, thanks to 5 by 15, we'll hear how the work of Ben Ockrey has inspired Jeremy Corbyn and reflect on how their dialogue has deepened since. Please welcome Laura Keeling of 5 by 15, will be introducing tonight's event. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. On behalf of 5 by 15, it is my great pleasure to welcome you all this evening. We are so delighted to be here and so honored to be hosting such a rare event. This evening you will witness the meeting of two extraordinary individuals, both of them leaders in their field. When Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party last September, in his victory speech... <laughs> in his victory speech, he shared some words that had guided him throughout his life. He said, the most authentic thing about us is our capacity to create to overcome, to endure, to transform, to love. The author of those words was acclaimed poet and novelist, Ben Oakry. Oakry responded in The Guardian with a poem dedicated to Corbyn called A New Dream of Politics. And so it became apparent that these two men shared a desire for progress, for a kinder world, and a belief in the transformative power of literature. We too share that belief. Before I invite them to join us on stage, one moment. <laughs> Let me just point out that this event has been a long time in the planning. It was organized seven months ago uh, when the world, or at least the political world, looked rather different. We, like many, have been left astonished by events in Westminster over the past four weeks. Politics has dominated our lives so much that there's been little space left to reflect on life's broader themes of idealism, purpose, and creativity. And if that is true for us observers, I think we can all appreciate how much more true it is for Jeremy Corbyn. We ask you then, with all the warmth and generosity you have towards him, to allow this evening's focus to remain as originally intended on creativity and on literature. 
I'm happy to announce finally that Ben Oakry will be signing books after the event in the Level 2 Entrance Hall. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage Ben Oakry and Jeremy Corbyn. sounds like a very hostile crowd. <laughs> this is going to be a tough one. It's going to be, it's going to be a very difficult evening. So, um, should we get some water going first? Yeah, that'd be yeah. a good start. Should we share, shouldn't we share the water out then? It's, sort of <laughs> it's kind of a socialist thing to do, you know? <laughs> How are you all feeling today? Well, um, as you heard earlier, this uh, conversation uh, was meant to take place when it, when it was first suggested, was in a completely different world from the world in which it's taking place right now. Um, there were moments when we thought it might be difficult, but miraculously, um, the tenuous nature of the various protagonists of this conversation have um, <laughs> stayed put, and here we are. Okay. We're going to be talking about creativity, literature, art, and culture, but in accordance with the belief that I hold very dearly, which is that you can talk about whatever you want, but the things that you really deeply want to talk about will come through anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that principle of indirect conversation is going to be the basis of our conversation tonight. Are you comfortable with that, Jeremy? Totally happy. <laughs> <clears throat> I've been looking forward to this for a long time, Ben, and I'm really pleased it's finally happened. And I think we should say a big thank you to the Royal Festival Absolutely. Hall and Absolutely. the people that work in my team, Cat Fletcher and Absolutely. others, for all they've done in putting this together. <laughs> and always remember to love the Royal Festival Hall. <laughs> it's a great space, by the way. Wonderful space. So I want to start, I want to start this conversation, Jeremy, by asking you, uh, because I think we're more shaped by these things than we suspect, um, what you think were the most formative books of your life? The most formative political book of my life was um, The Ragged Trouser Philanthropists, oh. um, given to me by my late mother, who, was, um, who loved books and loved reading and made sure that I had plenty of books and plenty of reading. And what I admired about the book was it was written in a simple way of these building workers donating their energy, time, labor 
to um, basically to an unscrupulous employer. And I think we could rewrite the ragged trouser philanthropists and place it in a call center or a sports direct factory or something like that. They are the modern ragged trouser philanthropists, exploited, underpaid, no security, and um, no respect given to them by many of their employers. And I think it's updating those messages. That was a book that had a huge formative experience on me. How old were you when you read it? 16. 16. What, what about if we go back before that, say four, five, six? Um, I used to like reading travel books, adventure books. Now this sounds really wacky, but are you like looking at atlases? Why? Well, that, is, that is very wacky, by the way. And I, <laughs> I, like, I like atlases too. I collect maps. Shall we talk about this quietly later <laughs> on? <laughs> um, no, I love looking at atlases. And different places around the world. This was in, of course, a pre-internet age. And what I used to like doing after school, go to the public library across the road and get out that, those huge, you know, those big Times yes. atlases. Actually, they're great. They were about as big as me, actually, at that time. Uh, and, and look at colour, places colour like, parts yeah, of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like I doing that. And then as I got a bit older, um, I lived in the country. I was quite fascinated by Ordnance Survey maps because if you look at an Ordnance Survey map properly, you can actually paint a picture from it. You can see everything. You can see the hills, you can see the valleys, you can see the rivers, you can see churches, everything. And um, so I like doing that, and I liked reading travel books and um, books about different experiences in different places. Jeremy, are we talking four of the five here? <laughs> no, 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 no. Because that's, that's awfully, no, awfully grown-up reading. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we started with calculus in my house at two, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was uh, reading children's books then, which I, frankly, I'm not sure I may have remembered that one. Mm. There was ladybird books. Do you remember them? I remember those. I can't remember any of them. Yeah. We yeah. had lots of them. One of my favorite um, children's books that influenced me very was, was Alice in Wonderland, actually. Yeah. Um, and I loved its kind of insane, sane humor. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, I, I think Alice in Wonderland, yeah, because it, at one level it is a children's book. On it is children's book, but yeah. another level it's actually a very profound yeah. work that yeah. um, Dodgson did. And that I absolutely like. And a profoundly political work as well. Yeah. Yeah. In, in some ways you could say it has certain, not quite anti monarchical elements, yeah. but there are certain questions about, about the nature of power. In, yeah. in, that, in, that, in that fable. Well, and likewise, we, we were talking earlier, Saint-Exupéry and the Little Prince, at one level is a children's story, and it's a fascinating children's story, but another level, it's a deeply political book yeah. about the world, which en any person at any age could read and learn a great deal from. I think it's an amazing piece of work. I think this brings me to the next really, really important question. I think it's one of the reasons that we're actually here together today. Um, <clears throat> I get the feeling I, I don't meet um, as many politicians as maybe one ought to. I don't know if it's a very healthy thing to meet too many politicians. <laughs> My mother um, once warned me against politicians. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the, the few that I've met, um, they're not big readers. Mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> This is... No, I happen to know that you read a lot. Yeah, I read a lot, yeah. 
Um, so my question is one, why is it, is it part of the nature of the job of being a politician that they don't have time to read? Or do they find reading, especially literature, in some way antagonistic and problematic? Um, and if that's the case, how come you got around reading so much? I think it's partly because politics is more dominated by process than ideas, quite often. And it's dominated by the instant, not the long term. And uh, many people that think to get on in politics, they should study X, B, Y, do Z, and then they get elected somewhere. Um, and often not terribly clear why they've done any of those things. And I do think that it's important that people do read quite widely. Now, I've been very lucky because um, I was brought up on the idea that you should read for enjoyment, but also for knowledge. And um, I didn't succeed in a university education. I had a different form of education, which was kind of self-selective and self-chosen. And I like to read things that are completely different to whatever I'm doing at any one time, to read several books at the same time quite often. Um, so wh why, do you do like, wh why do you like reading books different from what you're doing? Because I like to read books different from what I'm writing at any given point. Because it makes me realize that um, something you're doing on a day seems incredibly important. It is, it's mm. the moment, it's the issue, it's what you've got to do that day. And then you decide to read a book about um, history or um, I just recently read Open Veins in Latin America, again, because it's an amazing book. And last summer, when I was um, traveling all around the country during the Labour Party leadership contest, we spent hours and hours on lots and lots of trains traveling all over Britain. I read um, De Profundius by Oscar Wilde, oh. because I like Oscar Wilde, but because it was something totally different to what we were doing. And um, I also... Um, read quite a lot about William Godwin and the Godwins and the Shelleys um, as a way of uh, appreciating the struggles that people went through for their ideas. Oscar Wilde ended up in prison and wrote that brilliant ballad of Reading Jail while he was in prison. Um, William Godwin was um, tried for treason because he supported the French Revolution. Um, and you realize the struggles people went through and the dangers they were prepared to face because of the ideas they were promoting. In no way could you say either of them were some sort of militant, military, revolutionary threat to anybody. They weren't. It was the power of their ideas that was so terrifying to the establishments of the day. I think... <laughs> I, think I think also in the case of Oscar Wilde, um, I mean, why the performance is so moving is because he was one kind of person before. He was an aesthete, um, and he believed very much in art for art's sake. Um, and then he went through this blistering experience of the establishment, got put in prison, and then suddenly saw society for the first time from a completely different point of view. Which um, is why the ballad is so interesting, because of what it says, but also to Profundius, because of the way it's written. And the interesting side story to it is that the um, governor of the of Reading Jail um, was 
had read all his works because they, the prisoners in those days were not allowed to take anything out of prison when they left. So he was due for release and he was taken into the governor's office, who was apparently a ex-military gentleman who was the governor of the prison. And as uh, Wilde stood in front of him and he said, you know, your, your time's up, you can go now, your sentence is over. He said, um, I've been reading what you write. It's pretty good stuff, here it is. And gave it to him, so it was published. Otherwise it wouldn't have been. Wow. Amazing. Wow. And then he, left, then he left Britain forever and went to France, where yeah. he died. Yeah, and he died with that famous, that famous quote, which I, I still find very moving. Um, either that wallpaper is girls or idle. Well, the other quote he had was a good one. Was, um, he was very drunk one night, and they said, you know, a policeman comes up to him in uh, Covent Garden and said, you're drunk and you're lying in the gutter. He says, yeah, but I can see the stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was... He, he was, he was he was witty until the last moment. Yeah. And I'm thinking maybe this is a good time for, um, for some poetry. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I, think I think I'm going to go first. Um, it's, it's, I'm, taking that, I'm taking that prerogative. And um, the poem I'd like to read is a, is a, is a poem I wrote not very long ago, and it's called um, A New Dream of Politics. They say there is only one way for politics, that it looks with hard eyes at the hard world and shapes it with a ruler's edge, measuring what is possible against acclaim, support, and votes. They say there is only one way to dream for the people, to give them not what they need, but food for their fears. We measure the deeds of politicians by their time in power. But in ancient times, they had another way. They measured greatness by the gold of contentment, by the enduring arts, the laughter at the hearths, the length of the silence when the bards told of what was done by those who had the courage to make their lands happy, away from war, spreading justice and fostering health, the most precious of the arts of governance. But we live in times that have lost this tough art of dreaming, the best for its people, or so we are told by cynics and doomsayers who see the end of time in blood-red moon. But always when least expected, an unexpected figure rises when dreams here have become like ashes. But when the light is woken in our hearts, long after the long sleep, they wonder if it is a fable. Can we still seek the angels of our better natures? Can we still wish and will for poverty's death and a newer way to undo war and find peace in the labyrinth of the Middle East and prosperity in Africa as the true way to end the feared tide of immigration? 
We dream of a new politics that will renew the world under their weary, suspicious gaze. There's always a new way, a better way, that's not been tried before. And he inspired that poem. So the next question I got for you, just following on from, from that poem, is this. Um, I've, I've noticed that in the life of people who've made significant journeys, um, in, in their careers, in how they affect the world, that in their lives, there's always a point where they could have taken a different road. Um, instead of being activists, they could have been dentists. I, I just chose that because of the, <laughs> the end rhyme. So my question for you is, how did you choose your road, and what are the alternative lives that you could have lived? To give you an example here, I, I, I could have been a pirate. <laughs> that was my first dream. Astronaut. I could have been a really bad scientist, an even worse musician, and an okay painter. What were your other alternative lives? Well, I grew up in a country area, so I suppose the obvious thing would have been to be a farmer. Um, I can't quite see that somehow. Why not? <laughs> what have you got against farmers? I, I love farming. Okay. But I think, I think you're more, I think your farming is with people. You mean I'm not bucolic enough for farming? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I see you're farming with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of had lots of ideas of what I might do, but um, my formative years was leaving school was to go and live in Jamaica for two years um, as a volunteer. Wow. And um, I worked in schools there with um, children who have been, had been afflicted with polio and um, also a lot of um, taking kids, young people out camping and climbing up Blue Mountain Peak. And I also worked in a theater while I was there as well, which was for the first, it was called the, the Barn Theater 77, which produced the first um, Jamaican written plays in a newly independent country. Because up until then, what passed for um, culture within Kingston was in fact imported British plays. Mm. Um, and nothing wrong with that itself, except if it's suppressing the talent and the ambition that's there, well, that's not a good thing. And so I was very happy to be a, light, a very bad lighting operator in a theater uh, and, and uh, support in any way that I could. But this, to me, was an amazing awakening and experience. I'd never been, hardly ever been out of Britain before. I'd never been on a plane before, and I suddenly ended up there. And um, I learned a great deal, and it aroused in me and in an interest in the post-colonial world of the Caribbean, and obviously as a parallel to that, the post-colonial world of Africa, and an interest in the way in which black consciousness was growing at that time, in which the ideas of Marcus Garvey were coming back into fashion in Jamaica, albeit in a slightly 
different way, and um, also the way in which we looked at the world. And um, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, Walter Rodney, mm -hmm. who wrote a fascinating book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, um, <coughs> which I, I still have, and it is a really interesting book. Um, he came to Kingston in 1968 to um, give a lecture at the University of the West Indies. And the government of the day completely panicked and banned him from the country for no obvious reasons. I can't imagine the Prime Minister at the time had ever read any of his works whatsoever. But they said he was a very dangerous man, had to be banned. And uh, uh, most people in Kingston had probably never heard of Walter Rodney. But the end, by the end of two days rioting, everybody had heard of Walter Rodney. <laughs> uh, and, and so it was a sort of massively counterproductive move by the government. But what he was doing was challenging the idea that in a post-colonial society, that case in the Caribbean, it was necessary to actually look at things historically differently to understand how you were going to do things differently in the future. And that taught me a lot and set me on a lot of thinking. And after that, I um, went off on an odyssey of my own um, all around Latin America or South America. Um, and uh, again, learned a great deal about cultural interaction and the impact of history on different societies and different cultures and the way in which, for example, in Peru, you have at one level a modernist tradition now of um, industrial development and uh, sort of that kind of modern economy. You don't have to look very far and you see the effects and the impact of the Spanish colonial organization and its um, aggression in taking the resources out of the country. But that's all overlaid again on an Inca culture which was um, at one level quite cooperative and quite sharing, at the other level quite hierarchical. And that in turn is overlaid on a pre-Inca culture where the Inca empire grabbed everybody else's empires. And so you then realize, and this comes out in open veins of Latin America, that every culture is built on every other culture underneath. Oh, like and politically cemetery. it comes forward. Yeah. Like a cemetery of cultures. Yeah, yeah. a cemetery of cultures, a very good way of putting it, yeah. So, so in a way, you're saying that you were politicized by your travels through places like the West Indies and La Latin America. And the levels of poverty and insecurity in people's lives uh, and the horror of many people's lives. And also, this was a time of uh, a lot of military dictatorships in a lot of countries. And I have a predilection to go on demonstrations. So. I what was your first? What was your first demonstration? In Britain or in Latin America? In Britain, ever was, your first uh, ever demonstration? Oh, probably CND demonstrations in London. I would have thought, yeah, would have been. And then uh, I went on various demonstrations in um, in Latin America, which wasn't very popular, and I got arrested everywhere. But they just sort of <laughs> chucked me out of the out of the police vans and stuff like that. So it wasn't it wasn't a good idea, really, because nobody knew I was there. So at what, point did you, at what point did you make the transition from being an attender of demonstrations to active political career? Well, I think there isn't, there isn't a point. The two things go together. Because if you are serious about organizing a campaign on any issue, 
you then become more and more involved in the organization of that campaign. You then are in a position of political activism and political influence. So the two things run, one really runs into the other. And um, when I became very active in unions in Britain, um, I realized a number of things. One is how difficult it is to organize people at the workplace and deliver for them. Secondly, how important it is. And thirdly, what a huge responsibility you've got on your shoulders when you've um, encouraged people to make a demand, take action, and you've got to do your best to try and find a way through what are often very difficult situations to deliver that. And so I, did, I became very active in a lot of political causes um, and uh, then was eventually became a councillor in Haringey and uh, at the same time I was a union organiser in the public sector for the National Union of Public Employees. Okay, here's a, here's a left field question. Is there any place for creativity, because creativity is the underbuzz here, when we think of creativity, we think of the arts, dance, literature, painting. We very rarely think of creativity in politics. We should, but we don't. <coughs> so is there any place for creativity in politics, and what form do you think that could, that could take or it does take? The, the, the issue is that um, people get elected to public office, councillors, union officials, MPs, MEPs, whatever. They're inundated with um, business style information, instant decision making, do X, Y, Z. It totally destroys, unless they're very strong on it, any ability to think long term. And it tends to prevent them thinking in any creative term and take them away from creativity. And so I think the issue is that we, how we educate our children in the first place. Why do we divide up subjects so much in school? Why can't you study maths and poetry? <coughs> Why can't you study physics and art? Because it, we have to recognize the creativity that is in everybody. And I, I think that um, we see too much of um, cultural expression as being elitist. It shouldn't. It should absolutely be totally popular what we do, how we do it, and popular music, and that's important. And if I, can get, if I may... Do, do you want to read, um, read something? I want to read something. When you say about creativity being popular, um, I, 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 find that, I find that astonishing that people have ever challenged that remark because, to my mind, creativity is fundamentally human, which is to say to be human is already locked into the idea of being creative. So why we got to separate these things is really, really beyond me. Yeah. And when you talked about why can't we teach mathematics and poetry, well, there's mathematics in poetry and yeah. there's poetry in mathematics. So Absolutely. It's, it's, what were you going to read? And so when these children, when children are so often given really tough choices at 14, you can do history, you can do English, you can do science, you can do this and the other, and if you, if you don't do this, you won't be able to do that and you'll never be the CEO of a big company. A 14-year-old, wow. <laughs> Um, the poem I want to read is, um, I won't read it all because it's quite long, it's from a friend of mine who sadly died last year, Mike Marcusy. He died of cancer and he was um, a very good friend of mine and was um, a very assertive and sometimes quite difficult person because he, w he would never let go of whatever he was asserting at any one time. I can relate to that. <laughs> um, and he wrote this poem called Street Music. I won't read it all. but. 
it's kind of his empathy for what street music is about and the way in which the popular creative culture is actually always there all the time, whether it's recognized by the Arts Council or not, it's still there. Um, <clears throat> so let me read a bit of a poem, street music. <clears throat> let me tell you about street music. Busking is a game. Even the police play along, depending on your repertoire. My Darbuka man knew how to locate that low, hollow spot and make it ring like a bell. But concrete is concrete, you know, the tiled underground, an acoustic black hole. We looked for natural amphitheatres and found them on waterfronts and piazzas. But wherever we sang, we were soon moved on. I could spot them from a distance, the passers-by who were going to pass us by without a glance. I could see them deafen themselves and admire the strength of their resolve, the rigidity of their gaze. I wrote songs just for them, gentle melodies, like a light touch on the upper arm. Dirges were perennial favourites, melancholy spread like honey over the ranks of harrowed commuters. I could sing of, a lo of losing a lover, a flat, a game of chess. All that mattered was the loss prefigured in the chord. Once I was hammering out that line where Dylan, where Dylan says there's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. When a man with a black leather briefcase, a smooth brow and untroubled eyes put a 20 pound note in my hat. Let me tell you about street music. There's nothing pure about it. It's a moment by moment compromise. It's slippery, sarcastic. It makes a mockery of the World Trade Organization. It takes the piss out of intellectual property. It's recidivist and we're proud of it. Okay, here's a, here's a kind of low, just low above the net question for you. How's, how's your tennis? Tennis, terrible. Good. Absolutely terrible. Good. Here's a tennis question for you. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> In Africa, we still respect the wisdom of older people, people older than us. In the West, this respect is kind of dying. So my question for you is, is there a place for wisdom in society? And where do we turn to in this country for such wisdom and such guidance? I think it's very sad the way in which um, older people are often described as a problem, a burden, a difficulty, a, a demographic time bomb. And, and all that, instead of being treated with respect and the knowledge that they have. And in part, it's because of uh, housing situation and economic strategies that means that uh, extended families don't stay together very much. And so the older person often is isolated and alone, and that is often very, very sad. But it's also, older people often feel nervous uh, of younger people in doing anything to impart their wisdom and knowledge to young people. So there was a lovely lady in my area called um, Daisy Scafardi. She's sadly no longer with us. And um, she was a, um, 
a Cockney of Italian extraction via Liverpool and a few other places. And she was absolutely brilliant. I love Daisy so much. And she said to me once, you know what the issue is? These kids aren't learning their history properly. I said, okay, what are you gonna do about it? She said, well, I wanna go and sort out the schools of it because I'm not happy with the way they're doing things. And she was somebody that would do it herself. So she sort of marched into each primary school in the area, um, banged on the door, got in, and the head teacher would say, uh, yes, Mrs. Scafardi, how can I help you? And she'd say, I've come here to learn the kids a bit of history. <laughs> and she would go in to classes, because she was a very engaging person, and just tell them about life that she grew up in the streets where there was terrible poverty, the high levels of unemployment, discrimination against people like her, and how they fought back together to achieve things. And she told them real life, oral history. And to me, she was somebody that was wise, informed, and probably inspired a lot of kids to look at things in a different way. And I think it's, uh, we should open our hearts and minds much more to the stories that older people have about what they've been through and what they're going through. I'll give you another example locally, if I may. We had a, um, a nursery in uh, one uh, community center in, uh, in my area where there were a lot of children whose parents were uh, refugees. Some of them were single parent refugees, some were families, but the children were um, feeling fairly disorientated. And there was a pensioners club meeting next door. So we put the two together. And the uh, children, the refugee kids, adopted a granny or a granddad from the pensioners club, and they got along fantastically and taught each other a great deal. You can bring generations together, and both can learn a lot from it. We should just respect people a bit more. Okay, here's, a, here's another one. Um, Low, low net. So you're going to have to really do an Andy Murray for this one, I think. Um, truth is a tough thing in literature. Can we agree on that? You sound very doubtful. No. Okay. Why would I be doubtful? <laughs> I, I'll keep going then. Okay. Truth is a tough thing in literature. Even in novels, you have to tell difficult truths with care. It is one of the reasons we have fables, metaphors, and myths. Tough truths in literature gets you into trouble. It's very hard to reach tough truths anyway. It requires so much digging, so much technique, so that it's not crude. But truth in politics is hard too, isn't it? Sometimes the truth is too complicated. Sometimes it's too nuanced. Sometimes the people they tell us are not ready for such difficult truths. Like the story of what happens to the bearer of bad news. So the question is, can one always be truthful in politics? And the attendant question to this is, and it connects with your early life, and don't forget the first part of the question. <laughs> and what do you think is the difference between the truth of the actor and the truth of the politician? Well, the truth of the actor is that they are performing on a stage, giving the truth of the play, film, or whatever form of communication they're doing, that's true, 
In the case of the, the politician, the truth has to be the reality of the situation you're faced with and what it is you really want to achieve for people. And if we had the truth about um, some of the wars we've been involved in, would we have gone into those wars or not? I ask that question myself all the time. If we really knew the truth of what many had said about the consequences of some of those events, would we have gone into it? Yes, you can make yourself incredibly unpopular if you say absolutely what you believe um, at any one time. But in the end, if you were to achieve anything in life, it's not just in politics, anything else, you've really got to be able to look in the mirror at the end of the day and say, well, actually, yes, I did say what I believe to be the reality or the truth uh, of the situation, and I'll, I'll live with that. But if you've hidden things from people, hidden the consequences of some decision from them, then you've let yourself down, and you've let an awful lot of other people down as well. But what about circumstances, for example, where if you tell people the truth, they might panic? And so it might be necessary to not tell them the truth at that time or to break it to them. I'm just, I'm just interested in the relationship between truth and, and, and the complexity of our lives. Because um, I, I know that truth in literature is very, very, very difficult, really very difficult. And as a politician, where you're dealing with the naked facts, um, it's, I think it's even more, more tricky. And I'm just, I'm just interested in that interface. Well, you have to be honest with people. You have to say what, as I said, what you believe to be the truth. And you have to also outline the consequences of whatever decision you're deciding to take. But if you hide from people the truth of something, then you're being deeply dishonest. I'll give you um, an example, for, say, dealing with a planning issue, dealing with building a some kind of factory or a mine, and the pollution that's going to come from it, you might choose to hide the consequences of that because you want the commercial benefit of the enterprise you're doing. You don't face up to the environmental cost of what you're doing. So you can say to everybody, you can all have um, you know, as much um, luxury tuna fish as you like, that it's going to be there forever, knowing full well it isn't because you're going to make the, the, make the whole species extinct if you do that. So you have to f in, tell the truth about what we're doing to the environment, tell the truth about what we're doing when we make those decisions. And on a bigger scale, I was talking uh, about war and peace, and the easy thing is say, yeah, we're going to sort this out militarily, we'll go in there, we'll sort it out, and it'll all be over. And as we know full well from the refugee crisis that surrounds this continent at the moment, indeed surrounds the whole world, Wars have a habit of creating a refugee crisis that goes on for generation after generation after generation. We've got to think that thing through and do things in a very different way. Should we, should we, have, should we, have, a, should we have another reading or should we, should we go for some quick fire questions? Um, what do you think, quick fire questions or another reading? Well, we could ask the audience, couldn't we? Re readings, okay. 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 There's a minority call for quickfire questions and a majority call to the front row for, for reading. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you want to read first or shall I read? No, you, go, you go first. I read I've got something. a couple of things I want okay. to read. Okay, my reading is from 
um, a tiny little book that was published by Penguin of Albert Camus. He's another kind of great truth, truth talker. And this is an essay that he wrote called The Almond Trees, and it was in 1940. And it was written at a time when people thought that civilization was going to collapse, at least Western civilization. And this is how it goes. I'm just going to read a little bit. Let us know our aims. Let us then know our aims. Standing steadfast on the mind, even if force dons the mask of ideas or of comfort to lure us from our task. The first thing is not to despair. Let us not listen too much to those who proclaim that the world is ending. Amazing. Things don't change, huh? Civilizations do not die so easily. And even if this world were to collapse, it will not have been the first. It is indeed true that we live in tragic times, but too many people confuse tragedy with despair. Tragedy, D.H. Lawrence said, ought to be a great, a great kick at misery. This is a healthy and immediately applicable idea. There are many things today deserving of that kick. When we talked about having this event, um, I thought a lot about um, Ben's books, uh, particularly The Famished Row, but other ones as well. And also the way in which um, African literature is portrayed, and indeed Africa is portrayed in literature. And so I've got two short readings I want to give. The first one is um, from Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, written in the 19th century with its description of um, the journey of this man through the Congo at that time. And I want to read a bit of that and then follow it with something that is uh, very interesting and total contrast to it, if I may. Absolutely. So reading from Heart of Darkness, this is, um, it goes like this. I had no idea why he wanted to be sociable, but we chatted. Then there it is suddenly occurred to me. The fellow was trying to get at something, in fact, pumping me. He alluded constantly to Europe, to the people I was supposed to know there, putting leading questions as to my acquaintances in the sepulchral city and so on. His little eyes glittered like mica discs with curiosity, though he tried to keep up a bit of superciliousness. At first I was astonished, but very soon I became awfully curious to see what he would find out from me. I couldn't possibly imagine what I had in me to make it worth his while. It was very pretty to see how he baffled himself, for in truth my body was full only of chills, and my head had nothing in it but that wretched steamboat business. It was evident he took me for a perfectly shameless prevaricator. At last he got angry, and to conceal a movement in his furious annoyance, he yawned. I rose. Then I noticed a small sketch in oils on a panel representing a woman draped and blindfolded, carrying a lighted torch. The background was somber, almost black, 
The movement of the woman was stately, and the effect of the torchlight on her face was sinister. It arrested me, and he stood by civilly, holding an empty half-pint champagne bottle, medical comforts, with the candle stuck in it. To my question, he said, Mr. Kurtz had painted this in this very station more than a year ago while waiting for means to go to his trading post. Tell me, pray, said I, who is this Mr. Kurtz? The chief of the inner station, he answered in a short tone. Looking away, much obliged, I laughed. Uh, I said, laughing, and you are the brickmaker of the central station. Everyone knows that. He was silent for a while. He's a prodigy, he said at last. He's an emissary of pity and science and progress, and devil knows what else we want. He began to declaim suddenly, for the guidance of the cause entrusted us by Europe, so to speak, higher intelligence, wide sympathies, a singleness of purpose. Who says that, I asked. Lots of them, he replied. Some even write that. And so he comes here, a special being, as you ought to know. What ought I to know? I interrupted, really surprised. He paid no attention. Yes, today he is chief of the best station. Next year he will be assistant manager. Two years more and, but I dare, I dare say you know what he will be in two years' time. You are the new gang, the gang of virtue. The same people who sent him specially also recommended you. Oh, don't say no. I have my own eyes to trust. Light dawned upon me. My dear aunt's influential acquaintances were producing an unexpected effect upon the young man. I nearly burst into a laugh. Do you read the company's confidential correspondence, I asked. He hadn't a word to say. It was great fun. When Mr. Kurtz, I continued severely, is general manager, you won't have the opportunity. This was Conrad about the arrogance of the Europeans going into what was Congo to steal the rubber, the minerals, and everything else. And it's about a journey which is very dismissive of the African cultures that were there, the structures of society were there. And uh, I, I think it's an interesting read in lots of ways because it's a reading of its time and it's a vision that he gave at that time. And before you go into the uh, next think. book, yeah. uh, Heart of Darkness is also a really problematic text yeah. for, for a, lot of, a lot of Africans because yeah. of the very negative ways in which it uh, portrays um, 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 Africans. And one of our very important writers, Chinua Achebe, kind of made it a crusade, actually, to really tear this book apart. It's, it's really, really quite interesting. Um, and the other thing I want to say is that people, you know, when I say to people I've got a real problem with Heart of Darkness, I think it's a great book, wonderfully written, but at the heart of it is something, something rotten. They, 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 they say, oh, you know, it's, it's not so bad. And I have a lot of Indian friends who say that. And I say to my Indian friends, you're a lot luckier than we are. We had Heart of Darkness, you had a passage to India. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, written about a hundred years later, uh, Ama Ato Aidu wrote Our Sister Killjoy, which is a um, poem, narrative, of um, an educated young woman from Ghana traveling around Europe in the 1970s. And um, she wrote this, and I'll, I'll, read, um, I'll read part of it. This is a young woman, graduate, going on a trip to Europe. If anyone had told her she would want to pass through England because it was her colonial home, she would have laughed. 
She generally considered herself too smart to exhibit such weakness, but to London she had gone anyway, consoling herself all the while that that was the only way to get people at home to understand where she had been, abroad, overseas. Germany is overseas. The United States is overseas. But England is another thing. What this other thing is has never been clear to anyone. France is surrounded by a special situational fog all of her own. In the minds of the people at home, France exists, not as a separate country anywhere, but as reflected in her numerous colonial entities. For instance, all the relatives who had immigrated after the Second World War to the Ivory Coast to fish were talked of as having gone to French. They're a legend, these self-exiled Ghanaian fishing communities. They spread along the west coast of Africa from the mouth of the Congo to the Gambia River. They could not have done better than the farmers they left at home. Seeing that all that comes back are news of death, their own, or the children they bore. She had no idea of what to expect of England, but what no one had prepared her for was finding so many black people there, men, women, children. The place seemed full of them, but they appeared to be so wretched, she wondered why they stayed. There were mothers pushing their babies in second-hand carriages while their men toiled the long day through as bus drivers, porters, construction workers, scavengers, mostly scavengers. Sissy bled as she tried to take the scene in. The more people she talked to, the less she understood. Two facts stood out, though. Every man claimed that he was a student, and so did every woman. The men were studying engineering or medicine or law, but Sissy was not surprised to learn, too, that most of them had been students since the beginning of time. The women were taking courses in dressmaking and hairdressing, they said. Of course, there were the scholarship students, so-called because they were supported either by full or partial bursaries from the government at home, and who, for a time anyway, would therefore be conscious of the fact that they did not finish up quickly and hurry back, their remittances would be cut off. Then there were the recipients of the leftovers of imperial handouts. Postgraduate awards, graduate awards, it doesn't matter what you call it. And did I hear you say awards, 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 what? Dainty name to describe this most merciless, most formalized, open, thorough spy system of all time. For a few pennies now and a doctoral degree later, tell us about your people, your history, your mind. A pair of stockings that are too light for a chocolate skin. A pair of cheap shoes. Never mind what color, but sheep. The cheap. The shoes. The shoes are always cheap. Cheap plastic versions of the latest middle-class fashions. Sissy could console herself only with one thought, that against any other skin, such an assemblage of rags would have made the people look even more ridiculously pathetic than those African and West Indians actually did. But perhaps the cold comfort was the gift of knowledge acquired later, for she knew from one quick composite vision that in a cold land, poverty shows as nowhere else. And, and that book is uh, something I'd urge people to, to read because it sets the whole European culture in a different way from the, uh, through, the, through the eyes of somebody that had been told that the greatest achievement was to go to Europe. She goes to Europe and finds herself extremely badly treated. It's not the first time that story's been told, but I think it's a wonderful book. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a lovely book. 
Um, I want to follow from that. Um, just take a little thread. I know one image did not win the referendum. But my question is, why did the good-minded people who wanted to remain not counter or challenge with an equally powerful image that appalling image of a winding queue of immigrants that weren't even into this country that had the strap line breaking point. My question is, why was that image not challenged with another image? And if there's an image to counter such an offensive picture of immigrants, what image would you choose? <laughs> Well, that, uh, that poster was the most uh, disgraceful poster of, well, I've ever seen for a very long time. It was essentially saying that these desperate people flee fleeing from wars are somehow or other a threat to us. It was the dehumanizing of a whole debate and saying somehow or other desperate people are a threat to us. In reality, you could have looked at that snaking line of people and see there builders, doctors, lawyers, engineers. You could have seen lots of people there. Instead, they were portrayed as a threat in a completely racist image that was used for it. It was an utterly disgusting thing. Why was it not opposed in a different way is a, is a very good question. Because surely the image that should have been put was that actually Nationality can be overcome. Nationalism can be overcome. People doing things together can be overcome. And surely we should have constructed some kind of image surrounding that. And when the issues of the numbers of European nationals uh, living in Britain came up, I, I said, several of the meetings I went to, I said, actually, if you're really worried about European migration into Britain from other parts of the European Union, you're more likely to be treated by a doctor or a nurse mm. from somewhere else in the world or some other part of Europe than you are to meet them alongside you in the queue. And I think that's the image we should have put forward, that we as a society achieve more when people do things together. And we recognize the talents of people that have made their homes in this country and made such an incredible contribution to it. What instead we got was this image of the desperate refugees and instead this horrible divisive image that somehow or other it's a, a bad thing to be a refugee. It's a bad thing to be a migrant when in fact the whole world is people by people that have migrated from different places and made the most incredible contribution. This building the Royal Festival Hall, built in 1952 as part of the Festival of Britain, was designed in large measure by refugees from the Second World War. Think about it. I didn't hear that. They're, they're, having, they're having their own conversation, Jeremy. Carry on, it's fine. <laughs> okay, here's, here's, a, here's another one. 
Um, this, 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 one, this one also interests me a lot because um, this, is, this is a media question. Um, and it's got two heads to it. One I'm going to improvise on, and the other I'm going to read out. Which do you want first? Let's try the improvise. Okay. okay. Why has it got two heads, anyway? Well, some, some questions tend to have two heads. Okay. <laughs> They're the best ones, though. Why not three? <laughs> we, could, we could add a head. <laughs> okay, here's the improvised question. Um, there's this idea that you're ill at ease with the media. But um, in about an hour of conversation with you, I, I, I don't get that feeling at all. So where could this misunderstanding have come from? I think there are degrees of um, media aggression against individuals where they simply refuse to engage in whatever message the individual is trying to put forward and instead just heap abuse on them um, and take no, take no mind whatsoever to what they're trying to put forward. And I must say I find that um, disappointing, <laughs> shall we say. Um, more than disappointing because actually it demeans the whole political debate and it demeans everything that we believe in. If somebody is saying there is a difference It's always this business of throwing labels at people rather than, uh, than meeting the issue they're doing. So if we're sort of saying, well, actually, there is a different way of running the economy which isn't based on cutting all public services, which is actually based on expanding the economy and spending more on public services, uh, instead of dealing with that issue, any person that puts that forward is down dangerous radical extremist, ultra-leftist, Marxist, Leninist, revolutionary, Bolshevik, anything you want to say, without ever understanding what any of those uh, phrases may actually mean. And I find that very sad and very depressing. And it, it's also, we live in a, an age of, um, of celebrity and personality rather than ideas and causes. And so when great changes in Britain happen, such as the National Health Service after the Second World War, that was campaigning by a lot of people for a long time, of pointing out that quite simply, if you cared for everybody's health, everybody would be in better health, but it would also be a fundamental right, and that was, that was achieved. Uh, that was by debate. These days, we're told that somehow or other, marketization, cutting, destroying, free market solutions, trickle down through area of economics, is somehow or other a good thing and we extol the virtues of those that are very, very rich and say they're successful because they're very, very rich, rather than saying people are successful because they all contribute together to achieve the collective good of all. So those that are super rich are put on a pedestal because they're super rich. Those that contribute to society in the way that most of us want to uh, marked down as um, either idealists or failures or something much, much worse in the case of many, of many people that I know. So I wish just our media would recognise that some people are actually looking for something a bit more thoughtful than just the plastic images of the super rich and calling them successful. <laughs> Thank you.
But, 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 the, but, the, but the trouble with the media is that they are the ones, well, not entirely, they're kind of like the intermediary, largely, between what it is that you want to say and what it is that you want to get across to, to, to the people. So we have, this, we, have this, we have this intermediary, as it were, that's not playing fair um, while appearing to play fair and at the same time sometimes indulges in this demonization. The question is, how do you deal with it? Because you have to deal with it. Well, sometimes some of our media take themselves a bit too seriously because if you look at the the great national newspapers of this country, most of them have falling circulations, most of them have falling readerships, and some of them are now retreating behind a paywall uh, on the internet. And the reality is that most people actually get their information from either quick things on television or from social media, particularly anyone under 40 relies very heavily on social media for their information. Social media is a great way of reaching out to people. It can be a great way of mobilizing large numbers of people. It's not always the best place to do quite serious debate because it's also so short-term and so instant. But the technology that we've now got is so amazing that you can actually reach massive numbers of people very, very quickly in a way that was unheard of um, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. And you have to sort of think with admiration of those people who um, in the 18th and 19th century brought about such massive political changes in Britain by traveling from town to town to explain to people, many of whom were illiterate, what a different idea was, why the slave trade was evil, why the slave trade had to be ended, why the Corn Laws were such an important issue. All those huge issues of the 19th century were all achieved by people in an oral tradition. We later came on to the mass newspaper tradition. And uh, when I first became active in politics as a teenager, uh, my proudest possession was a, a hand Gestetner duplicator in my bedroom. And so I could turn the handle and turn out, um, well, if I stayed up all night, I could probably turn out a couple of thousand leaflets. And I was very proud of myself. These days, you can reach um, half a million people in 10 seconds uh, on Twitter or, or the internet. And even if they don't all read it, you've still reached a few hundred thousand people. It's that massive ability to communicate that actually bypasses a lot of the um, rather arrogant sense of directing public debate that is there in some of the broadsheet newspapers or some of the radio or TV stations. So in every country, things are changing very, very fast. And I think that's very, very exciting. And it means that more people are open to more ideas and more imagination than they ever would have been before. So I think embrace that technology. Embrace so, it. It's there. That's so, what it's for. So to, <laughs> so, so to paraphrase Prince, the media is so over. <laughs> so it's so it's just so 80s, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's have let's have some quick fire questions. Are you ready for some quick fire questions? Yep, yep. Okay. Yep. You got you have no you have no time to think. You just got to answer just like that. You ready? Walking or cycling? Cycling. Cat cat or dog? Cat. Poem or no, poem or novel? Poem. Well, he's both, it's all right. 
Dance or yoga? Yoga. World peace or world prosperity? Peace. Mountain or sea? Mountain. You missed that one. Mountain. <laughs> Up there, hi. To speak or to listen? Listen. To change the world or to change the government? Change the world. To be understood or to understand? Understand. To control or to direct? Direct. <laughs> you've, got, you've got someone who's... <laughs> who's up there? Power or revolution? Power or revolution, they're equal really, aren't they? You've got to choose. Well, which one do you want to go for? You're not choosing, are you? No, I'm choosing. not choosing, you're the one choosing. Okay. I, All I, right, I, let's be bold, let's do revolution. Okay. <laughs> okay, and the last one, to be a work of art or to make a work of art? Oh, to make a work of art. I, I'm never a work of art. Make one, please. <laughs> okay, shall we have a I think William Morris was the best, wasn't he? Everything should be beautiful or yeah. useful. Yes, absolutely. Good job. Okay, should we have a... How, how are we doing for time? Who are the time people around there's here? A, there's a clock down there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking at that clock. I don't trust it. <laughs> I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm having fun. I think the idea is just keep going till somebody stops us. Yeah, till is that okay? Till someone throws us out. Okay, here's, here's a fun thing I wanted to do. A couple of things I've always, I've always dreamed of doing, and this is one of them. So, do you want to start it and I'll take the next bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And I've always wanted to just read it aloud in public. So, it's... <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty long speech, so we're just going to take a tiny chunks and we're going to share it. So, you go, you go for the first bit. This is Martin Luther King, 1963. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells, and some of you have come from areas where you quest. Quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You've been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, and, even, and so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. 
we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right here in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The low places, the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back with to the South. I have a dream today. Thank you. Okay, so, okay, okay, some, some, some questions here. Um, I just very quickly want to ask you. This is from Victor Debawale. Is your version of socialism based on the past or the future? Future. Why? Well, because we're too often taught that great ideas are somewhere that everything of the past and all that matters now is, um, is technology, money, and the prosperity that comes from it. I think the, the ideas of people that you have a world where you share, a world where you work for each other as much as for the individual are as valid now as they were from the very early socialist ideas that come forward. Socialism is actually a natural way and a sensible way of doing things, that you work collectively. Because at the end of the day, we are not islands. We all depend on each other for our own very existence. And so I think socialism is the way forward. If we're to deal with the massive issues of inequality across the world, massive issues of environmental destruction that's taking place, and the massive issues of people simply trying to get somewhere to live. It can't all be done by free market economics and extolling the super wealthy at the expense of the very poor. It can only be done by doing things together and recognizing we have to share the limited, finite resources we have on the limited, finite planet on which we live. Okay, I think I want to ask you what I kind of intimate a little, well, not intimate, but intimate to, to the lives of people. What, what advice would you give to a young man or young woman embarking on their big adventure of life right now? Realize your dreams, make the very best of it, and always take good opportunities that are available for you. But put 
something back for the rest of us to follow on with later. Don't do it all just for yourself. Do it for everybody else. And if you recognize that basic human spirit of doing things with and for each other, then we all get along much better. And recognize that our talents are there for the good of all, not just the benefit of the individual. Should we go into audience questions or shall we? Um, as you wish. Yeah. You wish. Here, okay, here's, a, here's one I just, here's one that, um, that kind of tickled my, my fancy a little bit. I've been trying this with David Cameron. I'll see if it works better the other way. <laughs> okay. The story goes... <laughs> How am I supposed to continue after that? <laughs> the story goes that Lenin wouldn't listen to a Beethoven symphony because he believed that great music pacifies us and is therefore against the revolution. Do you agree with this? No, I don't, actually. I think, uh, I'm sorry to say that Vladimir Lenin was totally wrong on that, actually. I think um, great music is the most fantastic thing, and uh, I, I love all kinds of music. I'm not in the least bit musical. Don't, get a, don't have any pretense on that. But I do think great music is incredible. I think Beethoven, probably the greatest musician there's ever been, and the brilliance of his music is something that will be there for all time. And there are many, many others. Yeah, well, I don't know what Lenin was on about there. <laughs> Maybe he just didn't want to fund an orchestra. <laughs> so you think it was a funding issue? <laughs> <laughs> well, the weird thing is that in the early days of the Soviet Union, they, played, they put a huge store on creative culture, particularly musical culture, because Russia has this amazing tradition of very good classical music. And indeed, the uh, 1920s in Moscow were a time of the most amazing innovation in music and art and everything else. A lot of it was suppressed a bit later on when another chap came along. But that period in the 1920s was one of quite incredible artistic endeavor in Moscow. Alexander Kolontai's work and other works at that time are really there for all time, and what a creative city it was. Okay, here's something from a tango dancer, a tango teacher. A tango teacher. Yeah. I was on a train, train journey, and I fell into a conversation, as you do, with a tango teacher who was sitting next to me, and she said something really interesting. She said, the leader can only initiate moves if the follower follows. The leader has to be attuned to where the follower is at. Is this true also in politics? I think you've got to be aware of why you're there. You've got to be aware of what the people are asking you to do and what you're trying to do. But really, it's about empowerment of everybody. I think the idea of strong, fairly dictatorial leaders is not a very healthy one. I think what's much healthier is a real democratic involvement of large numbers of people that are pushing things and pushing ideas forward so that if you come across obstacles of um, powerful 
rich vested interests that don't want changes in our society, the individual is probably not going to be able to overcome those obstacles. People together can overcome all those kind of obstacles. Surely the whole strength of a democratic society is people coming together demanding something very different and making sure it's delivered. That is what accountability is about. When leaders start to dictate, that's not a very healthy situation. Okay, we're into audience questions now because I'm aware that the time is beginning to play, play games here. Is uh, Tony Mills in the audience? Tony Mills? Okay, this is your question. Which song would you choose to be the English national anthem? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I guess it would have to be Jerusalem, written by Blake, and, uh, and what it is, you know, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green. Fantastic song. And indeed, Blake's writings are fantastic. But the other thing I thought was we could actually open a very interesting national debate. You could have a sort of... Um, competition to write an anthem which reflects the history of the country, which reflects the diversity of the country, reflects the beauty and geography of the country, and it, could, it probably would go on for years and years and years, <laughs> would probably never be resolved, and uh, Ben and I were thinking about this earlier, we thought, well, were we competent to judge a national anthem or not? Probably not, and so I, I think I'd go for Jerusalem. Okay, here's, uh, here's one from Dom Kuzopo. How do you pronounce that surname? Chopo, sorry. Thank you. Chopo, I got it. What was the last live gig you went to see? In this very hall, sitting up there, Layla Downs in concert here. It was absolutely brilliant evening. She's a Mexican singer, and we really enjoyed it. She was brilliant. Claire Mills. I hope you're not related to the first Mills. No? Good. Claire Mills here? Okay, this is your question. Which poem would you advise Theresa May to keep in her back pocket? <laughs> if she has a back pocket. Throughout her time as Prime Minister. I think uh, I would advise her to um, look at Oscar Wilde and read De Profundius. Which one? De Profundius, Oscar oh, Wilde. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty big... It's a very big poem, but she might have lots of time. You know. It's a very long poem, indeed. Steve, Steve Smith. Steve Smith asked the question... Um, is socialism, does socialism have a spiritual side? Yes, I think it has to, because uh, we are about people's lives and people's ideas, and we're, on a, we're also about the history of how things came about. So yes, I think there absolutely is a spiritual side to it, but it also has to be practical in that um, you're saying to everyone, yes, we can reduce the levels of inequality in our society. Yes, 
we can provide better opportunity of other people if we do things together uh, rather than do things individually. So I do think there is a spiritual side to it. There's also a very practical side to it. I think I think I think um, I think um, I think time is beginning to. Well, the, I've noticed the lights have been changing a bit. Yeah, I know. And it's got a bit brighter up. They're trying to tell us. It's got a bit brighter up the back, which is that is that does that mean it's sort of signal the time they're, to go? They're or trying something? to tell us something, but I think. Um, have we got time for any more reading? Or I not? think we should have one last reading. Okay, you go first, or I go first. Uh, but I think you've got. <laughs> I think you've got the last. I've, I've got the last reading. I wanted to read. A, yeah, I'll, I'll do before that you read that last reading, did you want to read something else? I, I did, but I just... Can you read one sentence of I it? I can read one sentence of it. Then I'll um, read the last bit. I wanted to read a bit from Starlight in the Ring by Hendren Quinnan, she, a woman growing up in apartheid South Africa. And um, she just describes how um, she went to school... Um, funded in part by her absolutely brutal uh, owner of the farm where her family were living. And I just want to read a little bit of it because it's a book I've just... She gave it to me when I was at an event in Birmingham and I was just totally moved by the way she described what it was like growing up under the brutality of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And I'll just read a little bit of it. I'm at school for afternoon studies. It's noisy in the classroom and I find it difficult to concentrate. I just can't continue reading. Some children are talking about something that seems interesting, but they are in disagreement. I close my book and move to the back of the class to listen to them. The talk is about the 1953 Bantu Education Act. The debate is about the pros and cons. So many children know about these laws. The children who live outside urban areas know a lot more than those who come from rural areas and farms. These don't have a clue and have nothing to contribute, just like me. So I pull my chair to sit down and listen. I'm amazed the more I hear, but I keep quiet throughout the discussion. This strengthens my determination to see the change in South Africa. Meanwhile, I cannot yet break the laws. How would I manage to contain myself when I know very well they're designed to hinder me? I must surely obey them, because should I fail to do so, I might go to prison. My dad warned me. I returned to my usual desk and bow my head. The bell rings. I collect my bookcase and walk slowly away. And it's her awakening of the um, reasons that her father was beaten in front of her very eyes by the farm owner who effectively owned him virtually as a slave. That was apartheid South Africa not that long ago. Mm. Jeremy. Jeremy, before you read that, I want to read five lines of Shelley. I'll feel pretty pissed off with myself if I don't get to read this. <laughs> I really would. Um, I think many of you, I think, I think there's some poems that ought to be like, you know those, you know, like, uh, those rock concerts, you know, the musician starts to sing and the whole audience knows the lines <laughs> and sings along with them? Well, this ought to be one of those. And I'd like to propose that we somehow make it so that anytime someone starts with the word rise, we know exactly what the lines are going to be. Does anybody know the lines I'm going to read? Okay. Can you recite it along with me? I've got a slight advantage because I've got the book here with me. <laughs> but if you can, just recite it with me. 
Or actually, let's all recite it together. I'll read one line, and we all do it together. Shall we do that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Rise like lions after slumber. Rise like lions after slumber. In unvanquishable number. In unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew. Shake your chains to earth like dew. Which in sleep had fallen on you. Which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Ye are many, they are few. Thank you very much. I want to read a poem by Ben Ockrey. <laughs> the new era is already here. Here, the new time begins anew. The new era happens every day. Every day is a new world, a new calendar. All great moments, all great eras are just every moment. And every day writ large. Thousands of years of loving, failing, killing, creating, surprising, oppressing, and thinking ought now to start, to bear fruit, to deliver their rich harvest. Will you be at the harvest, among the gatherers of new fruits? Then you must begin today to remake your mental and spiritual world and join the warriors and celebrants of freedom, realizers of great dreams. You can't remake the world without remaking yourself. Each new era begins within. It's an inward event with unsuspecting possibilities for inner liberation. We could use it to turn on our inward lights. We could use it to use even the dark and negative things positively. We could use the new era to clean our eyes, to see the world differently, to see ourselves more clearly. Only free people can make a free world. Infect the world with your light. Help fulfill the golden prophecies. Press forward the human genius. Our future is greater than our past. Thank you. Thank you all so much for providing. <laughs> Thank you all for providing the kind of rich, rich, powerful presence of your, your spirit and your consciousness here. Unfortunately, more than an hour and a half has gone past, and we have to carry this party into the world to change the world. I want to thank, I want to thank uh, very deeply Jeremy Corbyn for being a...
I want to thank I want to thank Ben Okri for his writing, for all that he does and is doing in his life, and the way that his poetry and his novels bring together the history of so many difficult lives, so many sad lives, so many wonderful lives in the famished road, for example, and the poetry that he writes, and the way in which he gets everybody to open up their minds to the possibilities of the way things could be done so much better and so much differently. What a fantastic person Ben Okri is. Thank you, Ben Okri. There's one, there's one last thing that we have to do. We have to take a great picture together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, my phone is prehistoric. It's not going to work. Uh, oh, here, here comes Jeremy. Here's, yeah, here's. So, do you want to do it with my, mine as well? You know. Yeah, you want to do, do it with both. Okay. Okay. So this, we, is, this is kind of like a huge selfie. This is, this is, so are you going to selfie or she's going to photograph? Well, I think Kat's going to do it. Oh, so sure, you're can you all it. wave or something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one, one more. One more. One more. It, it's my phone this time. What should we do? Good. <laughs> <laughs>